One of the things, uh, among many things that I appreciate about this church, and I always have appreciated, is uh, the sometimes raw honesty that people uh, bring to the table here. And uh, so this morning, as I was kind of reviewing my PowerPoint presentation with Holly, your husband, Scott Bufell, looked at the points in this sermon and he said, so is this one of those kind of do as I say but not as I do sermons, or do you really do this stuff? That's a legitimate question, and I kind of appreciated it, and uh, <laughs> and I assured him that, uh, and I'll assure you, um, that not just me, but all of us are in this process, right, of discipleship, of becoming more like Christ, and uh, sometimes it truly is uh, three steps forward and two steps back, and uh, but we're all somewhere along the spectrum, and uh, so as you uh, listen this morning, as you interact with this text... Um, I want you to hear it in the sense that uh, none of us have arrived yet. And, uh, and we won't, quite frankly, until we're in heaven. And, uh, but we're, we're all in this process together. We've been talking about the life of David for the last four weeks. Um, actually, the last three weeks. And we'll talk about uh, him again next week with the, uh, the passage that no preacher ever wants to talk about. And that's the whole David and Bathsheba thing. But uh, I'll do my best to, to tackle that one next week. So uh, come, if you will, and uh, be prepared for that. But uh, if you've learned nothing else in these past three weeks uh, from this brief look at the life of David, I, I think that we certainly learned this. Great leaders often have great weaknesses. Okay? Great leaders often have great weaknesses. History is teeming with example after example of this fact, from Roman emperors to U.S. presidents and everything in between. And unfortunately, it's not only true of pagan and secular leaders, but it's also true of those who have a great passion for God. Those who have a great passion for God. It was certainly true of David. At times, David demonstrated incredible faith, great faith, while at other times he was debilitated by fear. That's what we talked about last week. There were times when he was courageous, but there were also a number of times when he was incredibly cowardly. He could be compassionate, but he could turn around and act ruthlessly at times. It sounds a lot like you and me. Sort of this manic existence at times, right? Um, I was sharing sort of the content of this message yesterday with somebody, and, and uh, he nodded his head and he said, yeah. He said, let's talk about road rage. <laughs> Think about some of the things that happened to us, you know, uh, all in the course of a, of a few moments or even a, a short hour that we can go from being compassionate, loving, caring people, and something triggers something in us, and we can just literally go off. And, uh, and if you're like me, you kind of wonder how that happens. How could I at one moment have been in this kind of frame of mind, in the next moment, because someone cut me off or honked at me or did something else, uh, I can just fly into a, into a rage. King Saul tried to kill David. You, you remember that, right? He hunted him down, and he was relentless in his pursuit of David. And for some reason, David was able to turn the other cheek. But when a wealthy man, and this is the, the story that I want to talk about this morning, named Nabal, refused... David's request for help, 
David lost his temper, and he became so angry that he nearly committed murder. Nearly committed murder. All because his ego, all because his pride had been wounded. How ironic, but how human it is. How human it is. David demonstrates an almost supernatural patience toward a man who has been relentless in his pursuit to kill him. Think about this for a minute. But when a foolish, boorish nobody, really, disrespects him, David is ready to commit mass murder. It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? But it's a picture of who we are, or certainly who we can be from time to time. I believe that this account is very contemporary. It's like most of Scripture. And it holds some important spiritual lessons for us as we attempt to cope with our fragile and our sometimes wounded egos. And by the way, if your ego has not been wounded, it will be at some point. If you've not been attacked personally, at some point you will be. And it's a very difficult process to go through. So for the next few moments, I want to focus on David again and look at how he responded or reacted to this uh, relationship with this man named Nabal. But before we do, I want to share a story with you. Um, Some of you know that I was a high school English teacher, and so when we sing about melodious sonnets, I know what that means. Um, Chris Smith, you probably know that too, right? Um, But uh, I student taught at Springfield High School down in Eugene, and and if you're from the Eugene area, you know that Springfield can be kind of a difficult school, right? Um, It was sort of like a boot camp for student teaching. And I had a supervising teacher who was from India, and he was raised in the British school system, and he was very particular, and he was very demanding, and he was very critical of me. And the first time that he came to evaluate my teaching, uh, I knew I was in trouble because in those days we actually still wrote on a blackboard, and my writing kind of went you know, downhill. And... Uh, he jumped on that, and so I knew that it was going to be a long evaluation. And basically, he told me that I had no business being a teacher, that I had no grasp of the subject matter, that I had no ability to control my class, which I thought I was doing okay with. And I think he probably even questioned whether my mother should have ever given birth to me. <laughs> right down the line. And um, I was so hurt, and I was so angry. And uh, everything in me, you know, wanted to, to, to react and do something. Because this guy had attacked me at a very core level. You know, I had quit a job to go back to school, to get a teaching degree, and it was sort of like, this is what, you know, what I believed I was supposed to do. And then when you have somebody say, um, you're not cutting it. In fact, you should probably consider, um, you know, going to work at Jiffy Lou <laughs> or something, because you're not going to make it as a teacher. And so here I am. Um, anyway, um, it was a very difficult time. It was very hard. And, um, and so I know that all of us have been there at some level in our lives, whether it's vocationally or personally or relationally. You've been at a place where your ego has been wounded and your self-image has been attacked. And it's a tough place to be. Well, let's talk about this Nabal character. Okay, First of all, you need to know that in, in Hebrew... The word Nabal actually means foolish. 
So the writer of 1 Samuel is doing something here with that. But he was a rich man. We read that in verse 2. He had 3,000 sheep and he had 2,000 goats. That was a lot of money in those days, folks. He seemed to have one aim in life. And we get it as we read through this text. And if you have a Bible and you want to turn to 1 Samuel 25, you can kind of follow along through the chapter. And I'm going to make reference to it from time to time. His goal in life was to accumulate wealth to eat, drink, and be merry. That really seems to be what his purpose in life was. But his greatest asset was his wife. <laughs> seems to be the case, oftentimes, for those of us that are married. Her name was Abigail. And unlike her husband, she was wise, she was sensitive, and she was unselfish. She was everything that this foolish Nabal was not. Abigail. And from this account, we learn that for many days, David and his men lived among Nabal's shepherds, and they often protected both the shepherds and the flocks from danger. So naturally, when it was sheep shearing time in the Middle East, David assumed that Nabal would share some of the material blessings that he'd received with him and with his men. It's what any reasonable or any gracious person would do. So it was expected. In fact, it would have been expected for him to do that with these people. But rather than helping David and his men, Nabal, when David's men came to him, hurled this incredible insult, an unimaginable insult at David. This is what he said in verse 10. Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Can't you hear the sarcasm? And then he says this, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. The implication that David is somehow a runaway slave. This unexpected response devastated David's ego. Absolutely devastated him. To refuse to share his material blessings with those who had helped him was insult enough. But for Nabal to deny that he knew David, everybody in Israel knew David. Remember, he killed the big guy, the giant. Everybody knew him. And for Nabal to suggest that he was a runaway slave was more than David could take. Overcome with anger, he grabs his sword and he orders 400 of his men to do the same thing. He intends to go and to kill every man that's connected with this Nabal, including Nabal himself. Talk about a strong reaction. Talk about a strong reaction. The chapter before, he had an opportunity to kill Saul, who'd been pursuing him. And he chose not to do that. But this man insults him, and he's ready to, to kill him and everybody who's connected with him. But Nabal's wife, Abigail, catches wind of this, and without consulting her husband, which was a good idea, prepares a truckload of food, well, not a truckload, a chariot load, or whatever you'd call it, and goes out to meet David and his men to head off this slaughter that's certainly going to happen. I don't know if this is a healthy thing or not, but she accepts responsibility for the whole thing. Maybe she was codependent, I don't know. But she accepts responsibility for the situation. She begs for mercy, and she minces no words in describing her worthless husband. Good marriage, huh? This is what she says in verses 23 through 25. Abigail saw David. She quickly got off her donkey 
And she bowed down before him with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and she said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is Fool. And folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men that my master sent. Well, her selfless, or perhaps not so selfless, response helps calm David's emotions, enables him to gain control of himself to a certain degree. He was clearly touched by this woman's openness and honesty, by her willingness to come and to deal with the situation. But more importantly, he seemed to recognize God's hand in what was taking place. This is significant. When we get fired up, when we're emotional, when we're angry, when we're hurt, sometimes it's very difficult for us to see God's hand in any of that. But David does. And he says in verse 32, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. He saw Abigail as a messenger of God in some way. Well, she returns home, and not surprisingly, she finds her goofy husband partying and intoxicated. And so she waits wisely until the next morning to tell him about the encounter that she'd just had with David. Upon hearing a report, Nabal is either so filled with anger or so frightened or both that the scripture says his heart dies within him. Right? He either has a stroke or he has a heart attack. And it says that ten days later, he dies. And here's a troubling and yet, you know, real description in the Bible that this death was not accidental. It was, in fact, God's judgment on this wicked and evil man. And I'm going to talk more about this in a minute. It's verse 38. Well, here's an interesting piece. When David hears about Nabal's death, he wastes no time in asking Abigail (laughs) to become his wife. So evidently he was more impressed with her than we know when he met her. And she wastes no time in accepting his offer. She knew who he was. Ironically, Nabal not only lost his life, but he also lost his wife to the man that he wouldn't help. There's no principle here, okay? So, you know what I'm saying? Um, So what do we learn? What do we learn from this text that can help us deal with our fragile egos? And perhaps deal with the fragile egos of other people. And when these egos get wounded, what do we learn that can help us respond in ways that are helpful and healing rather than in ways that are hurtful and destructive? I think there's at least three lessons in here. And as my teacher friends reminded me this morning, there's a lot more, but uh, our time is limited. But here's the first one. A wounded ego is a dangerous motivator. Amen? A wounded ego is a dangerous motivator. David's response to Nabal, his uncontrolled anger, was fueled by a personal attack on his self-image and his ego. Nabal rejected him personally. You've all been there. At least most of you have. Where on a very personal level, someone said, you don't count, or I don't like you, or I don't respect you, or I don't appreciate you. Nabal rejected David personally with sarcasm. He denied that he even knew who David was. 
was certainly a slap in the face, a low blow. But it was hardly worth the response that it elicited from David. It seems to me to be a bit over the top. But think about yourself for a moment. Okay? Aren't you, aren't we all, most vulnerable to irrational anger when we're personally attacked or put down? Now, someone said, well, in, in some cases when I'm attacked personally, I don't respond in anger. I respond by withdrawing. Okay, I think that people can still withdraw physically and be angry people because of this. But we're vulnerable to being irrationally angry when we're attacked. Sometimes it seems to me that we can handle physical threats better than we can handle psychological threats. Because a physical threat is there, it's in front of you, you can deal with it, and it's over with. Psychological threats are something else. When people puncture our egos, when they attack our fragile self-image, when they tear us down publicly, we're most apt to lose control of our emotions. And this is exactly what happened to David. Exactly. And this is perhaps why James wrote these words in his letter in the New Testament. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Slow to anger. Remember, uncontrolled anger is almost always directly connected to our self-image, to our fragile ego. It's connected to fear. When we are most fearful, when we feel like things are most out of control, a natural response to that is to become angry. Think about that for a minute. Don't allow your wounded ego to drive you to make specific decisions and to take certain actions. Practice restraint. Practice patience. Those are fruits of the Spirit. Self-control and patience. It's why I hate email. That stinking send. How many times have you done that and you thought, oh, you know, I've been on the receiving end of a few of those and you have been on the receiving end of a few of those and you also sent a few of those. But it's so easy, isn't it, when we're so fired up to type that stuff out, say, I'm going to, you know, hit it, send it. Why are you laughing? You've all done it. And then you regret that. It, 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 it's, it's not a good thing. Okay, move along. Another lesson from this account. Quick-tempered responses are dangerous, and decisions made in anger can be disastrous. Quick-tempered responses are dangerous, and decisions made in anger can be disastrous. No one can blame David for being angry. Any one of us would have been angry in this situation. We're all human, and none of us like to be rejected or humiliated. The kind of put-down that David experienced would be difficult for any of us to take. But David's mistake was to make a decision to act while he was angry. Some of you that are married may be in marriages where your personalities are very different than your spouse. Or you may have friends, if you're not married, that you interact with a lot that have different personalities. One of the difficulties is that when you're the type who wants to deal with something right now, 
in the midst of your anger and you are related to someone who doesn't want to do that, that causes some tension, doesn't it? Restraint and self-control and patience, those are always the best, the best way to go. Being a follower of Christ doesn't exempt us from overreacting or being angry. We're in this process. Anger is a human emotion and can actually be helpful at times, right? It's a natural response. But the kind of anger that we're talking about here, this quick-tempered kind of reactive anger, is sinful. It's sinful because it causes us to act in improper and dangerous ways. When we, when we react like this, it, it's, it's scary. It's scary. This was David's mistake. And for some of us, it's a mistake that we make too often. A quick temper is a mark of immaturity. I don't know how else to say it. And David, at this point in his life, acted immaturely. You and I act from time to time immaturely. It's just the way it is. We're not perfect. Our goal should not be only to sort of corral our anger or our tempers, but to grow up into Christ in every way, as Paul says. In every way. Not just in this one area of our life, but in every area of our life. To grow up and become mature believers. Here's a caution. Don't make significant decisions and take specific actions when you are hurt and when you're angry. The results are never helpful. Nothing good can ever come from reacting that way, out of anger and hurt. Wait until you've gained control to some degree. It's often helpful to talk to another person. It's really helpful to pray. It's often helpful to talk to someone who has some perspective, who doesn't get caught up in your emotions. And further, and this is the most difficult thing, always try and perceive every difficult situation, every blow to your ego, as a learning experience rather than a personal attack. I don't know that we can ever do that in the moment. But you know, I talked about my student teaching experience, and when I kind of calmed down and talked to some other friends of mine who had the same supervising teacher, came to the conclusion that even though I didn't appreciate the way that he said the things that he said to me, there were some things I needed to hear. One was I needed to be more organized. Two, he was right about a lot of that stuff. But I couldn't hear it because I was so angry and I was so hurt. But when I had time to look, I realized, you know, it wasn't packaged very nicely, but the truth was in it. And I learned some things from that. Obviously, I've never forgotten it. <laughs> I don't think I ever will. But it's easier said than done. And here's the final lesson that we learn. And it's perhaps the most troubling, if not the most confusing. And I didn't know how else to word this, but it's always God's prerogative to take revenge. <laughs> this is fraught with all kinds of theological stuff, right? It can be dangerous, but let me try to help unpack this a bit. David's ego was wounded. His pride was hurt. And because of that, he was determined to retaliate, to get even, to get revenge, and we find ourselves right there. You tell me 
one time when you've been hurt deeply that you didn't want to retaliate or get revenge. Now, certainly, probably not by going out and murdering people, but probably he's thinking, you know, I just wish I could get even. I wish I could get even. David even allowed his anger to focus on innocent people. And Abigail intervened, fortunately. In this situation, God brought judgment upon Nabal. Okay? That's what the scripture says. It's extremely dangerous to expect God to respond this way in every case. We get into trouble and we start thinking like it. But according to the scripture, there will come a day when the Lord will settle the score. All the wrongdoings, all the injustices, there will be a day when that will happen, when he'll settle all accounts of wrongdoing. But it's important to remember that it's the Lord who will settle the score and not you and me. It's not our job. It's not our job to return evil for evil or attempt to exact revenge on people that have wronged us. I don't care how natural it is. It's wrong. It's God's responsibility. If we can't settle our problems through mature and thoughtful dialogue and communication, if we can't soothe our battered egos through prayer and discussion, then we have to leave it to God. We have no other choice. It's his prerogative to settle these matters. And it sounds like a cop-out. But I bet there's a number of you this morning that are hanging on to stuff, and you're just, you're just hoping that at some point there can be resolution to it, whether it's relationally or vocationally or whatever. And the reality is, in some cases, you have to leave it in God's hands. You have to leave it in God's hands. Never try to get even or to seek revenge on someone who's hurt you. You'll only hurt yourself. You're the one who will suffer. You're the one who will suffer. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't act or we shouldn't seek to straighten out difficult situations. We should. To the degree that it's possible, we should work, as Scripture says, to be at peace with all people. But sometimes it doesn't happen. But we need to be honest and open and, if possible, in a state of emotional control. And we always need to keep that other person's best interests in mind. It's God's way. Well, patience and restraint, those are the two words in this passage. Restraint, self-control, they're fruits of the Spirit. It's what God desires from every one of us in every situation. These are always the best choice. Patience and restraint, they're always the path to God's best plan for us. As hard as it is, those of you that that just want to tackle stuff, you know. I'm not going to go to bed tonight until I deal with this. That is so hard to be patient, to pray. This was the, the lesson, I believe, that David learned. And this is a lesson that we need to learn as we grow in Christ. Patience and restraint. Our egos will be wounded. They have been. Our pride will be damaged. Our self-image will be shattered from time to time. 
But the Lord walks with us in every situation. He is our strength. He is our encouragement. He is our hope. He is the rock on which we stand. He is the foundation on which we can build and should build our lives. And He is the only one who understands, truly understands, knows us better than we know ourselves, and is able to help us through whatever we face. He is our salvation. He is our salvation. We're not each other's salvation. God alone is our salvation. So trust in Him. Listen to Him. Place your hope in Him. Even when things are so difficult. Amen.